0: Please mark number 584, and we'll use that somewhat later in our service tonight, number 584. You may have already noticed as a part of the title, the indication the, the I gave for tonight's lesson, Busy Here and There. And by the very consideration of that, maybe one has to wonder what the thrust, the idea might well be in such a thing. You may have noted in Brother John's reading taken from 1 Kings 20, verse number 40, that that explicit phrase is there located. We not only will develop an appreciation of that particular passage tonight, but draw some applications from it that can be of blessing and benefit to you and to me as well. Now, the gathering together of the Lord's people in an occasion such as this one always is such a time of refreshment, a time of encouragement, a time, you see, of developing matters of thought and insight wisdom and appreciation based upon the text of the Word of God. Perhaps it is in that light that these introductory thoughts on this next slide may well at least put us in the direction of thinking about this passage this evening. One fact that could be of benefit to you and me is that every single text in the Bible revolves around Jesus Christ. Both the Old Testament passages and the New Testament ones, they revolve around the hub of the Christ the redemption available in His name, the salvation from doom and from sin available in Him. The Old Testament individuals looked forward to it. You and I now bask in the blessed light of it. And in so doing, even when we come to a text like 1 Kings 20, we can be reminded of some great truths and some appreciations that will be of benefit to you and to me. Jesus would say in John 6 verse 35, I am the bread of life. In many ways, that's a reminder, a stepping stone that will be at least a part of some of our conclusion tonight. Jesus is not only the thing upon which we feed, providing us daily the necessary sustenance and fortitude for life. He would also say in John 10 verses 1 and following, He is the door of the sheepfold, and He's also the good shepherd, both at the same time. I hope we never then forget or lose sight of the blessing of the Christ to us, how He is our elder brother, and how He is the one who looks upon us and after us, guiding us in the direction of eternal safety. The last thought on that slide sets before us some required goals and a reminder of the text that we'll look at tonight. Without any further delay, let me in fact transition our slide to the setting of 1 Kings chapter 20. I'd like to use the first couple of slides to at least remind ourselves of the setting of this chapter. It's interesting that the 40th verse is the one from which our lesson text came, but it seems to me we would do well to at least be apprised of some of the features that were taking place. And so, for a little bit of history, let me share some thoughts with you. After the reign of Solomon, that son you see of David... You and I might recall that the kingdom of Israel split. It split into the northern kingdom consisting of ten tribes, and they were known as Israel, the city that was by and large utilized by them as its capital was Samaria. On the other hand, two of the tribes remained loyal to David. They remained loyal to the characteristics of fidelity to God, and Jerusalem was the capital for them. As you'll notice on that slide, at the time of our study tonight, In 1 Kings chapter 20, the king of that northern kingdom was a man named Ahab. Probably that name already rings with an element of your knowledge concerning the kind of person that he was. 1 Kings 16 verse number 30 spares us no detail. He did evil in the sight of the Lord. You might remember he had a wife named Jezebel, and surely she didn't encourage him in any way that was godly. She didn't encourage him in any way that was faithful, but rather, these two encouraged idolatry. They encouraged evil amongst God's people, and they wrought much heartache among the northern kingdom of Israel. You may notice the next point on that slide, however, at this same time, one of the first observations that chapter 20 makes, you may note verse number 1, it says the king of Syria... This chapter is going to set before us a conflict between Syria on the one hand and the northern kingdom of Israel on the other. So Ahab will be the king of Israel, the northern kingdom. You may go ahead and notice in verse 1 who the Syrian king at the time was, a man named Ben-Hadad. He will be often mentioned throughout the text of the chapter. But Ben-Hadad was the Syrian king and we learn immediately the first few verses of the chapter that Syria, with Ben-Hadad as king, turned their attention to Israel. They wanted to capture Samaria. They wanted to fight against it. And at this time, at least, Ben-Hadad and the Syrian forces looked to be the stronger. It appeared as if they would have the upper hand. And in fact, as the chapter begins, may I draw your attention to verse 3? Thy silver and thy gold is mine Thy wives also, and thy children, even the goodliest, are mine. Ben-Hadad directly told Ahab, look, you can't defeat me. Your wives are mine, your silver is mine, your gold is mine, even your children are mine. I'm going to take them. He thus asserted that all these things, though they were Israelite in thrust, Ben-Hadad said, they belonged to me. You and I might immediately be taken aback if someone were to come and directly challenge and take away the things that we had accomplished and the things we had acquired. But that's what Ben-Hadad did. However, things only get worse. In the next verse, verse number 4, the king of Israel, that's Ahab, he answered and said, My Lord, O king, according to thy saying, I am thine and all that I have. He was willing to give it. He was willing to give his wives, his children, his gold and his silver. He apparently felt as if Ben-Hadad was of sufficient strength. He would not be successful in fighting against him. And thus, he was willing to allow these things to be taken. May I offer you this thought as that chapter proceeds again at the outset. We learn something rather interesting. Here was a king of Israel And you and I have seen so often God promising to them that if you will faithfully follow me, I will deliver you. Ahab was a faithless and weak man. He did not have his heart where it ought to have been. And as such, he was here unwilling to trust in the God whom he ought to have adored. And as such, he found himself in a very serious lot. Look at what follows it. In verse number 5, "...the messengers came again and said, Thus speaketh Ben-Hadad, saying, Although I have sinned unto thee, saying, Thou shalt deliver me thy silver and thy gold and thy wives and thy children, yet I will send my servants unto thee tomorrow about this time. And they shall search thine house and the houses of thy servants, and it shall be that whatsoever is pleasant in, their, in thine eyes, they shall put it in their hand and take it away." May I paraphrase? Here, Ben-Hadad wasn't satisfied with what Ahab was willing to give him. The wives, the children, the silver and the gold. Ben-Hadad responded and said, I've got another message for you, Ahab. Tomorrow about this time, I'm going to send my servants and I'll tell you what, they're going to search the houses of all your servants, the houses of those of your acquaintances and whatever that they want to take. They're going to take it. By this point, I believe you and I are getting an idea. Ben-Hadad felt as if he could do anything with Ahab that he wanted. I'm going to come and take whatever I want. Without reading all the verses that follow, we must at least now admit that Ahab was unwilling to agree to this second demand. He was willing to agree to the first one. You can take my gold and my silver, my wives and my children, but I'll not agree to you coming and taking anything that you want out of all the houses and the lands of the people. For that reason, on the slide, may I ask you to note that when we come to verse number 9, we see Ahab's response is that which I briefly summarized. But the next verse and the next slide brings you to note this. In verse number 13... A prophet was sent by the God of heaven, and he brought a message to Ahab. I've summarized it at the top. This prophet had some wonderful news for Ahab. The prophet told him, You will battle against the Syrians, but you will be victorious. The Syrians were not going to win this. Ben Hadad was not going to be the one triumphant against Ahab, at least on this occasion. To note exactly the wording of it in verses 13 and following, you may take note of some of the numbers presented. The forces of Ahab are listed. In verse number 15, then he numbered the young men of the princes of the provinces, and they were 232. And after them he numbered all the people, even all the children of Israel being 7,000. May I point out that wasn't an exceedingly large number. The Syrians likely outnumbered them by far. Have't you and I often noted that the scripture reminds all of us that if God be for us, who can be against us? Romans 8:31? In this instance, the forces of Ahab were to be victorious. Now as you read further and look down on that slide, you'll notice in verse number 22 and following, that there was a victory. It happened just as God said it would. Ahab's forces were victorious. But that is not the end of the chapter. You may notice, interestingly, in verse number 29, that although Israel won this battle resoundingly, there is certainly something to note. A prophet gave this message. The Syrians are going to come back. You may defeat them this time, but when the new year arrives... They will return. And so this particular period in time for Ahab was only a brief one in which he could recognize the blessing of God's deliverance. Could I point out to each of us how wise it is to always be faithful, to not rest upon a momentary element of success? Because one of the things coming to us in verses 29 and 30, the Syrians came back just as the prophet said they would. How did the battle turn out this time? Allow me to read, beginning in verse number 29. They pitched one over against another seven days, and so it was that in the seventh day the battle was joined, and the children of Israel slew of the Syrians and 100,000 footmen in one day. God one more time had labored on behalf of Ahab and his forces, and this time they slew of the Syrians a 100,000 in a day. In the very next verse it says, But the rest fled to Aphek, unto the city, and there a wall fell upon twenty and seven thousand of the men that were left. A wall fell on and killed another twenty-seven thousand of those that weren't slain of the hundred thousand in the day. One more time, God, on behalf of the children of Israel, brought a tremendous victory. A resounding victory, not once but twice. And now as you look with me at verse number 31 and following, By this point, Ben-Hadad was in a dire condition. He had tried twice and had been defeated both times. Ahab and his forces had overwhelmed him despite the fact that they were outnumbered. At this point, Ben-Hadad's servants have an idea. Verse 31 his servant said unto him, Behold, now we have heard that the kings of the house of Israel are merciful kings. Let us, I pray thee, put sackcloth on our loins and ropes upon our heads, and go out to the king of Israel, Peradventure he will save thy life. If I may again paraphrase, the servants of Ben-Hadad said, We apparently can't defeat them in battle, but I have heard that they are merciful men." Why don't we go and beg for mercy? Perhaps they'll save you and us alive. And so they did. Verse number 32. So they girded sackcloth on their loins and put ropes on their heads and came to the king of Israel and said, Thy servant Ben-Hadad saith, I pray thee, let me live. And he said, Is he yet alive? He is my brother. Now the men did diligently observe whether anything would come from him and did hastily catch it. And they said, Thy brother Ben-Hadad. Then he said, Go ye bring him. Then Ben-Hadad came forth to him and he caused him to come up into the chariot. Did you notice what, was, what took place? Ahab not only showed mercy to this Ben-Hadad, he treated him and called him my brother. He, in fact, embraced him with open arms and encouraged upon him a covenant, an association, a togetherness, a livelihood. At that point, the chapter rather quickly races to its conclusion. And it does so in the words you may notice on that slide. Another prophet, at this point, is brought by God to bring a message to Ahab. The message, of course, may be summarized as follows. This prophet basically said, you have shown mercy. I gave into your hand a man that was to be slaughtered, and you didn't do it. I gave into your hands a man that was the enemy of the God of heaven, and your enemy as well, and you didn't execute him. You preserved him alive and treated him like your brother. The chapter ends then like this. Verse number 40. And as thy servant was busy here and there, he was gone. And the king of Israel said unto him, So shall thy judgment be, thyself hast decided it. And he hasted and took the ashes away from his face. And the king of Israel discerned him that he was one of the prophets. And he said unto him, Thus saith the Lord, because thou hast let go out of thy hand a man whom I appointed to utter destruction, therefore thy life shall go for his life and thy people for his people. And the king of Israel went to his house, heavy and displeased, and came to Samaria. Now this scene is one that's a rather compelling one. And as you and I close the slide, we've thus noted, a message was brought by way of a prophet on behalf of God to Ahab. And the message is very stern. Let's draw several lessons from this that can be of help to us. I realize none of us are Ahab. None of us are Ben-Hadad per se. But remember that what was written in the Old Testament was written for our learning. It was there for precepts and for principles and for lessons. Let's note three of them tonight. Is not the first one this. I have entitled it, The Mixed Blessing of Success. You may have noted a phrase that will occupy our attention at least for much of our study tonight will be this phrase, busy here and there. The mixed blessing goes like this. Each of us know well and Brother Wayne led us in prayer a moment ago in which he gave thanks and each of us did as well for the blessing of our capacity to provide for ourselves. And we all understand that it's God that does it. He is the agent through whom we're able to labor, to toil, to work, and to accomplish, and by that to acquire. In so doing, that mixed blessing goes like this. God does command us to be filled with industriousness. That is to say, to work with our hands the thing that's good. Ecclesiastes 9 verse number 10 reminds all of us, Whatsoever thy hand findeth to do, do it with thy might. Didn't God even to Adam in the Garden of Eden say, in Genesis 2.15, Thou shalt dress the garden and keep it. You know, Adam and Eve, did even before they sinned, they didn't just wander around the garden doing nothing. They were supposed to be busy, to be thoughtfully and powerfully employed in doing the things that were good. Didn't Jesus say in John 9 verse 4, While it's day, it's important to work. For the night cometh when no man can work. Well, you know, the Lord at least there highlighted the industriousness and the value connected to this. But isn't it important to note the following? Ahab was a wicked king. His heart wasn't right with the Lord. He had been given to that which was evil, including idolatry. And yet in so doing, we learn something interesting. In this setting, on two occasions... He and his forces had defeated the Syrians. It would appear that Ahab began to feel a bit confident. He began to feel as if in his state of sinfulness that God had looked upon him with favor and had showered him so and led him to falsely consider that everything was okay. Therein lies the consideration for us. Just because we have some wealth... And just because materialistically all seems to be fine, that does not mean that our soul is fine. It might well mean that, and we hope that it does. But many a person has been blessed with materialistic gain, and over the course of time, when they give attention and due consideration to taking care of those riches, they find themselves separated from God. It happened to Solomon... Do you recall how wealthy Solomon became? As you and I read the book of Ecclesiastes in particular, but we give some thought to the book of 2 Chronicles, wherein we are given an explicit reference to how wealthy he was and to all that he had. The point was, his attention was turned to taking care of the wealth. You and I have seen it too in the lives of many, many people. Someone who had very little and maybe faithfulness to God was easy then. But when you have so many things to look after, the pomp, the wealth, the circumstances, and all that goes with it, and one's attention is riveted on maintaining all of that. It's easy for God to play second fiddle. And it's easy for God, in fact, to occupy a place of far less priority than He should. Some of the greatest wealthy barons of our day and time have known all about this. This mixed blessing of success is a constant reminder that even in the midst of material blessing, we must ever recognize God's the giver of those blessings. And we must never lose sight of faithfulness to God even despite them and to use them for our good and His service. Are we not told in Psalm 24, 1, The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. The world and they that dwell therein. In many ways, that was quoted in 1 Corinthians 10. And in verses 25 and following, as Paul quoted it, the lesson was the same. You may notice further along on that slide, you and I are encouraged, in fact, reminded, to never forget a gentleman that Jesus described as a rich fool in Luke chapter 12. A rich fool. One, you see, whose crops brought forth so plentifully, whose means brought forth so abundantly that they turned him aside from serving God. He turned his attention inward. I'll build bigger barns, and then I'll say to my soul, Soul, take thine ease, eat, drink, and be merry, for thou hast much goods laid up for many years. And then the God of heaven chimed in and made this statement. Thou fool, this night thy soul shall be required of thee. And then who shall these things be which thou hast provided? Did you notice? Much had been provided. Much had been acquired and accomplished. And yet God said, you are a fool. Because you have forgotten the one who gave you these things. And you have forgotten the lens through which they must be considered. May you and I in wisdom thus never fall into the trap that the rich fool did, and to ever appreciate that the man of wisdom is the one who will recognize whether we have much or little, we will ever honor God with that which we do have. Proverbs 3, verse 9. As you and I close that slide, our first lesson has then been a timely one and a great reminder. What about lesson number two? From this same passage involving Ahab and Ben-Hadad, Does it not resoundingly highlight this issue? We've already mentioned about Ahab. How that in chapter 16, verse 30 of this same book, he was given to evil. He did not do that which was right in the sight of God. By the way, you and I know that many of his offspring will follow in the footsteps which he himself set before them. On that slide before you, could you not consider this? God, by His providential means, brought Ben-Hadad right into the hands of Ahab. Did you notice? Ben-Hadad reached the point in mercy of going to beg mercy of Ahab. Here was the enemy of God. God brought him to Ahab, and Ahab did not. He did not do to him what ought to have been done. He welcomed him in, embraced him, made a covenant with him, and extended to him not only the right hand of life, but the right hand of those that were his servants. The prophet told Ahab, God delivered into your hand one that should have been exterminated, and you didn't do the bidding of the Lord. Maybe that says a lot about the priorities of Ahab. In his life, remember, he had been one who had turned his back on the God of heaven. He had chosen to dwell in idolatry by way of Jezebel and the things which she encouraged. And Ahab even attempted to build various matters and encouragements to idolatry. All the while, his ancestors were those who were the worshipers of the God of heaven And he himself ought to have known the pristine privilege of serving the God of heaven. As you and I look on that slide, is it not the case? We could fall prey to the same disaster. You know, priorities over time can change, can't they? Maybe that has happened in your life and mine more than once. Maybe there was a time when our faithfulness to the Lord was absolute. There was never a question of where we'd be when the services of the church were taking place, and there was never a question of the directness of our commitment and our devotion into the various matters of life. But maybe over time, circumstances changed, other matters in life developed, and maybe our priorities changed as well. We weren't as committed to the Lord as we once were. We weren't as devoted and determined as we once were. And maybe in our finer moments we knew it. Perhaps we began to feel ashamed. Maybe we began to feel a bit disgraced and shameful. And maybe we rushed to our God in prayer, begging His mercy, begging His encouragement so that we could be stronger and faithful, just as the apostles pleaded with the Lord, increase our faith in Luke 17.1. Perhaps it's to say all of that that's to say Ahab's priorities clearly were mistaken. What about you and me tonight? And what about you and me tomorrow? And even other times along these lines in our life. Since this issue in materialism was a critical part of this chapter, I invited you to note some verses with me. Verses that are certainly timely and verses that are very thought-provoking. In James chapter 4, verse 4 as that chapter began, James, you see, encouraged those of his day. You pray, but you don't get what you ask for. Why not? Because you ask amiss. Their heart wasn't attuned to the frequency of God in James 4, verses 2 and 3. And we learn in verse 4 how that came about. Ye adulterers and adulteresses, know ye not that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Whosoever therefore will be a friend of the world is the enemy of God they had become so materialistic that that's what they thought about. That's where the priority was. If your priority and mine is in that same spot, it won't be surprising that our prayers won't be answered. It won't be surprising, you see, that the other features of our life will find challenge and difficulty because, you see, our heart's not where it ought to be. God has promised in Malachi 3.8, He will open the doors of heaven and He will pour out grand blessings upon those who are His children. Maybe you and I have been the recipients of all those blessings. If so, may we never look past them. May we never forget who gave them to us, and may we never lose sight of using them for our service in His glory. Ahab's priorities were mistaken. And this prophet came to him and told him that. Sad to say, in the chapters that follow, he didn't learn very much from it, sadly, and tragically. And we find his life met its end in a very gruesome way. At this point, as you close that slide with me, could we not summarize some of it by saying this, there is nothing, and may I repeat, nothing more important in this life than being faithful to the Lord doesn't matter what else may be said of us. If we're faithful to the Lord, we are a success, and we can go home to glory when this life is over. But by the same token, materialistic gain without God, we are a failure. And what will we have to show on the day of judgment? You see, apart from God, we are not as we ought to be. I made mention on that slide of a poem, and it's one again that's very thought-provoking. Out of this world I'm unable to take things of silver and gold that I make, all that I treasure and all that I keep, I must leave behind when I fall asleep. Now at that point, note what's already been said. We can't take anything out of this world materialistic in character. But then he goes on to say this, When we and I appear before the great judgment bar of God, if it's true that our reflection is on those things left behind, we are no better off than Lot's wife who was turned to a pillar of salt as she looked back to what she thought was valuable in Sodom. She and it was all burned and lost. She was turned to a pillar of salt. Oh, how tragic it'll be on that day of judgment to look back and find your riches have all burned up. Maybe it's the sweetness then of this third point. What about lesson number three? One of the saddest things about this matter of Ahab is one of the statements that I made along the course of that historical setting a moment ago. Maybe it's time to reflect upon it because that's one of the things that God mentions to him through the prophet. You may have noticed that when these servants of Ben-Hadad came to him and pleaded for mercy, did you note how Ahab reacted? Let me read it exactly. Is he yet alive? Verse 32. He is my brother. Not only was Ahab willing to extend mercy, he called him his brother. This abject opponent to God, he called him a brother. This one who had no interest in the things of truth or the things of God, and Ahab should have known better, and he called him his brother. In fact, he did it again. Two different verses in this. Ahab called him a brother. If you develop this on the slide, you and I learned from a study of the book of 1 Kings, Ben-Hadad was an idolater, even worse than Ahab was. And yet, Ahab wrapped his arms of embracing encouragement around him and called him a brother. May we all point out, interestingly enough, that God takes very seriously the matter of fellowship. And in Christ, one must never extend fellowship to a place where God hasn't approved it to be extended, into a place and to those whom God has not approved to be considered as brothers. Paul was very careful about that. James and the others in the New Testament were very careful about this. In fact, you may notice on that slide, you and I can even extend it to this observation before we draw a final thought in a moment. The devil is our enemy. Surely we would never even consider calling him a brother or extending to him a fellowship as if he were right with God. After all, in 1 Peter 5, 8, he is our enemy who walks about as a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. And let's make an application. There are many upon the planet who are the followers of the devil. They are his servants, They have chosen to follow Him. It's not that they are made to do so. They choose to. And in Ephesians 5.11, we're told, we must never have fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness. We must never extend to them that element in fellowship. And that thought is echoed in 2 Thessalonians 3.6. If you and I summarize some of that this way, there's a passage in the Old Testament In 2 Chronicles 19, 2, where an explicit example of this is given. Ironically enough, I have said nothing tonight about the king of Judah at this time. We know that Ben-Hadad was the king of Syria. We know that Ahab was the king of Israel. Who was the king of Judah? That southern kingdom we learn in 2 Chronicles 19, it was a man named Jehoshaphat. Jehoshaphat, you see, was also one who should have been close to the Lord and one who should have in faithfulness served him. And yet, something interesting happened. Jehoshaphat extended fellowship to Ahab. And God sent a prophet to Jehoshaphat and said, Shouldest thou help the ungodly? Ahab was called ungodly. And this prophet ultimately would in fact state the judgment of God on Jehoshaphat for extending fellowship to Ahab. We today must be cautious. We can't give the impression that those who are not right with God are. We can't give the impression that those who are not faithful to the Lord somehow are. Even the New Testament encourages us in that way. And it does so by the passage in 2 Corinthians 6, verses 14 and following. We are told there that, you see, we too must appreciate the truth that was housed in the presentation of that prophet to Jehoshaphat so many centuries ago. That God takes note of those. And in 2 John, verses 9 through 11, we're not to bid God speed to those who do not do the bidding of the Heavenly Father. In that text of 2 Corinthians 6, 14, We are told there rather carefully that we are not to be unequally yoked together with unbelievers. That is to say, to extend to them that which is to be appreciated as if they are the people of God, for they're not. Three lessons tonight, all drawn from this one. Busy here and there. Are you and I too busy for God? Is it such that we've allowed the things in our life to make us sufficiently busy? that the matters of God are not of the priority that they ought to be. There is an eternal danger in that. It was mentioned in First Kings 20, verse 40. And the New Testament presents it on nearly every page. Where does your priority and mine lie tonight? You see, may we never allow ourselves to be so busy that our priority is misplaced, that the connections of our fellowship are extended to those they ought not be. And the features characteristic of where our interest lies is certainly where it should be. Tonight, as we've assembled in this place, we have been reminded through the agency of the book of 1 Kings how that even then, there was a lesson to be learned. And we've seen several of them tonight. As you and I analyze our life, where do we stand? If you need to make a public response tonight, please don't consider that a shameful thing. Oh, it's true that mistakes made in the past may well bring a dark cloud of understanding to our thinking, but aren't we thankful? Aren't we thankful God will forgive that? We do not need to answer to its guilt. We do not need to be burdened by the thought of what could one day be the cause and the character of it. It could be wiped from our slate. Hebrews 13 verse 20 says that once those things are forgiven, they're forgotten. And that is a great truth, isn't it? So it is the case tonight. If we could be of some assistance or help to anyone, we want you to know that God wants to forgive anything that would stand between you and Him at this time. And in fact, He sent His Son to die on a cross If that could be the case. If you and I need to make that change in life tonight, let us not be too busy to do it. Let us not be too hastily in such a way that we would let the urgency slide past us. This song of encouragement has been selected, and if we could be of some assistance, we'd love to do that. If you wish to become a Christian, though, in belief, repentance, confession, baptism, that too could be accomplished and you could depart this place saved, a member of the body of Christ, sins forgiven and marching toward eternal glory and safety. If we could be of help in any way tonight in either of these manners or as prayers of encouragement and faithfulness and strength, We could do that too. We'd like to use this opportune time to invite anyone to come while together we stand and while we sing.